Hello and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts. See the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Stephanie Seskin from the National Complete Streets Coalition and Paul Lippens from Active Transportation Alliance. Stephanie is the Deputy Director of the National Complete Streets Coalition, where she provides technical assistance to the advocates, practitioners, and elected officials, and she was recently named the 2012 Young Professional of the Year by the Association of Bicycle and Pedestrian Professionals. Paul is the senior planner with Active Transportation Alliance, where he specializes in complete transportation and multimodal facility design. He is the primary author of Complete Streets, Complete Networks, a manual for the design of active transportation, which was winner of the 2012 award for best practices from the APA's Illinois chapter. In an era of higher gas prices, increasing rates of chronic disease, and an increased call for fiscally responsible investments, People want complete streets that provide a safe choice of travel modes and access to destinations near and far. Stephanie and Paul are here tonight to discuss essential elements of complete streets policies and surgical roadway design fixes for complete streets implementation. Please join me in welcoming Stephanie Seskin and Paul Lippens. Thanks, David. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I work for the National Complete Streets Coalition. Um, and I am here to talk to you about complete streets policies. Um, this is something I spent a lot of time working on. Um, so as David was saying in his introduction, uh, our communities are changing. Uh, things are happening out there. Gas prices, health crises, um, crazy weather. For example, it's really cold today, but on Sunday it was 80 degrees, or it felt like it. Um, so people are seeing these changes in their communities and in their lives. and. They're asking for different things from their governments. Um, they're asking for more accountability. They're asking for a higher return on investment. Um, they're asking for transparency in decision making and for a greater role for the public in making those decisions. Uh, and when it comes to our transportation network, I think uh, Complete Streets plays a really important role in responding to those changes. Um, so as a result of all of those things that are happening outside in the world, we have to change the expectations for our community streets on three levels, practical, political, and cultural, which <laughs> I have written down the opposite direction up there. Um, so basically, you know, we expect our streets now, they have to be multimodal, they need to support local businesses, they need to provide access to work, to school, to home, they need to be safe. Um, and that's a big ask in general, I think, for all of those things. And to accomplish that, that means we have to change our transportation culture. We have to change how we make decisions and why we make them. Uh, we also need to change community culture, and that's where advocates come in, to help people understand that you don't have to be driving every day, that you can ride your bike or walk for short trips. Um, and uh, we also need to change political expectations, um, which are changing as well as we're trying to change them. Um, elected officials are a key partner in making sure that Complete Streets is implemented um, and is funded, especially. Uh, and they are asking for these things, and we need to reply with solid answers, um, and I think Complete Streets policies really help with that. Um, 
And finally, it just means changing our practical expectations for what transportation means. Uh, we can't afford to build our way out of traffic problems anymore. We have to think of new solutions, um, and we have to reevaluate what we have currently and make sure that we have a clear path moving forward uh, for a more economically viable and equitable communities. So in changing our expectations, we have to change our approach to transportation planning and design. Um, and Complete Streets, I think, provides a pretty clear framework for change. Um, and this is what we talk about a lot is policy system environment. So first, you adopt a really strong policy with a clear vision for what you want. Um, you have to change the way that decisions are made, the way that you make plans, the way that your design guides direct uh, engineering choices. Um, and we also need to uh, measure results over the long term. Wait, sorry, I skipped three. Um, we have to evaluate the on-the-ground income uh, outcomes. So in looking at our built projects, what actually is this adding to our community? Um, and then looking at it over time um, in the long term, so not just weeks and months, but over years, um, decades, what kind of changes are we seeing? Um, so I'm going to focus mostly on the first piece here, which is crafting strong, complete streets policies, um, which is a catalyst for the other steps. Uh, in writing a policy and some of the things that I'm going to talk about, uh, you'll see that it means much more than just saying, oh, that's a great idea. Let's write it down. It means a lot more. Like There are lots of other questions that come up that you need to address. Um, so I'm going to ask some of those questions, and I think Paul will also bring up some really great practical application of how those questions have come up in communities that he's worked in, um, and hopefully give a couple of answers. <laughs> so developing a complete streets policy itself is a, a really important tool for making all these changes that we're talking about. It provides a framework for discussing the transportation needs in your communities, sparking creation or confirmation of a new clear vision for the future, one that provides for all road users. Clarity about what a community wants can also be helpful in communicating with other agencies, uh, for example, your state DOTs. And it also gives the community ownership over the outcomes of what you're building. So they're proud of these streets that are changing because they understand the vision for complete streets and how the policy is helping to achieve that. However, success depends on bringing the right mix of stakeholders together. Policy development needs to include broad input from a lot of people, members of the community, elected officials, public health organizations, transportation agencies, your planning department, public works, and advocates. All of these folks have a role to play. Some have a smaller role, some have a bigger role, but you need to communicate with all of them to develop this vision. You also need to take some time to better understand how decisions make regarding transportation projects are made. A lot of times, other stakeholders don't understand the constraints of the profession, but the professionals also don't necessarily understand what it's like to be out on the streets. Um, so though the concept of complete streets itself is simple and inspiring, the coalition has found um, that a policy must do more than simply affirm support for complete streets. Um, if done correctly, it inspires the reevaluation of decision-making processes, of plans and guides, of community expectations and outcomes. And so we have developed these 10 elements of a complete streets policy that um, I have divided into four distinct parts. Uh, the first is sort of the pre-policy work of establishing a compelling vision. The second is creating a really strong core commitment to providing for all users and modes in all of your projects. Um, and I think that is the heart of Complete Streets right there. 
Um, the third is sort of best practices, rounding out that clear directive with other things that you need to address to make sure that you can achieve that directive. Um, and then planning next steps to make sure this policy is implemented. I'm gonna talk through each of these briefly. Um, and I think uh, if you want more information, completestreets.org is the place to go. We have a local policy workbook out there that has a lot of these questions that you should be asking yourself and your community members um, to write really strong policies. Uh, so vision, as I was saying, uh, it's really important. Um, this is what will guide your decisions. This is what your community will rally behind. This is what you use to convince people uh, with each project that this is useful and this is what we're trying to achieve. Um, so what do you want from your streets? Uh, do you want health outcomes? Do you want a choice in transportation options? Um, do you want a higher return on investment from the money that you're putting into your transportation network? Thinking about those things, coming up with a clear vision that is something that the community rallies behind is really important. Um, all users and modes. Uh, the heart of a complete streets policy is, as I said, a clearly stated directive to include the needs of all people, regardless of how they're traveling, um, their age, their ability, their income, um, their ethnicity. Uh, they need to all be part of the everyday decision-making processes that transportation professionals undertake. Um, full integration into that process uh, is the desired outcome of a complete streets policy. It's not something that you add on at the end. It's not, we have a two-lane road now, and now we're going to buy an extra 10 feet of right-of-way to build sidewalks. It's thinking from the very beginning that all of these users are there, that we're starting from scratch. What do we need to accommodate all of these people who are moving through the community to the different destinations? Um, and it's also really important to think about equity issues here, taking into account um, past systematic marginalization of certain communities uh, because of race, ethnicity, or income, and addressing that as you're moving through your complete streets implementation. Um, so how does that fit into your policy? Something that you should be thinking about. Um, your policy also needs to apply to all projects and all phases of projects. So it's not just new construction and reconstruction. Uh, I think we all know that big road projects are not happening as often as they used to, and when they do, it's once every few decades. Um, we need to think about ways to see all transportation improvements as opportunities to create safer, more accessible streets for everyone. Um, so that includes rehabilitation projects, repair, uh, major maintenance work, and operations work as well. Um, all of the little things build up over time to uh, create a network that is safe and usable for all people. Um, so when you're writing your policy, you need to think about how does Complete Streets fit into the scoping, the planning, the design, the funding, the construction, the operations, and the maintenance of all of your facilities. All of the people who are involved in those activities need to understand this vision that you've set with Complete Streets so they can apply it in their everyday work. Um, and of course, making a policy work in the real world requires developing a process to handle exceptions to that policy. Um, there needs to be a balance when you're specifying exceptions, of course, um, so that there's flexibility but uh, not so many loopholes that it's just an, an ignored policy. Um, so we at the coalition recommend three. They're based on guidance from the Federal Highway Administration. Uh, the first is accommodation is not necessary where specific users are prohibited. So interstate freeways, you're not building sidewalks on them. Um, 
pedestrian malls, you're not ensuring that traffic can move through. Um, the second is when the cost of accommodation is excessively disproportionate to the need or probable use. Um, we don't recommend attaching a percentage to that number. Uh, it's hard to do uh, just figuring out how much each element of a project costs, but it also is difficult because the context for projects change what you need to be building. Um, so if you're doing a downtown project, you probably will spend more money on pedestrian elements than you would if you were doing um, a, a rural road. So saying it's 20% across the board doesn't really make sense uh, in those kinds of cases. Um, and the third exception that we uh, talk about is when there's a doc documented absence of present and future need. So yeah, right now people aren't walking, but that doesn't mean that in three years they're not going to, in seven years they're not going to. This is the time to be building facilities on this project. So let's think ahead. Um, and if they are going to be there or potentially going to be there, then we should be building for them now. Um, the primary objective of Complete Streets is to provide safe accommodation for all users. And I think that any additional exceptions to those three really start to weaken that idea. Um, engineers and project managers, as much as they may be reviled in some places, um, they're talented. They're creative problem solvers, or they can be. You just have to tell them what the problem is that they're solving. Um, and they'll do it, and they should be able to address any project-level barriers in ways that still achieve an environment that's supportive for all users. Um, and in addition to defining uh, the exceptions through good policy language, you need to think of a clear process for granting them. And whether you think about that when you're writing your policy or during implementation, it's really important to have someone who's at a senior level approve them, uh, to have someone who's publicly accountable to make that information available. Again, that transparency that people want, they want it in the exceptions process too. They want to know why we're not doing this the way that we had envisioned in the past. Um, and now getting into sort of the best practices elements. These are a little bit more fun to think about, I think, um, although they do require a lot more thinking. Uh, network. A good complete streets policy recognizes that you can't just have one or two complete streets. You need to build a connected, integrated system so that uh, residents and visitors can get to their many potential destinations by whatever mode uh, they want to use that day. Um, so this means two things. One, planning for a network and having network connectivity. And two, ensuring that gaps in that network are filled um, in a systematic way. Uh, so on the first point, trying to make every street perfect for every traveler is impossible. That's not something that we want. That's not what complete streets means. It means balancing the needs so that we can have a comprehensive network of options for people. Um, so maybe you're not biking on this street, but you're biking on the one a block further. Um, maybe uh, you're prioritizing your transit improvements. Um, and it, of course, you're not going to build transit stops on streets where there is not going to be any transit. Um, you also need to think about how this impacts private development, uh, which is a theme that comes up a lot uh, when they're building new subdivisions or when they're doing projects on existing roads. What are they doing to the street? How can we make sure that people are accommodated? How do we make sure that they are accommodated during construction as well as once the project is finished? Um, you have to think about what opportunities exist to connect non-motorized networks given the uh, infrastructure that you have right now. So maybe you're not doing lots of big road projects, but maybe you can connect uh, a couple of subdivisions together uh, 
via a trail um, or provide a sidewalk through an enormous parking lot so that people who are walking along the street can access the businesses that are there. Um, and of course, thinking about what are the literal gaps in the network? Where are sidewalks missing? Uh, where are people walking? And it's obvious because the grass has been trodden for months and years. Um, that is a gap, and that needs to be addressed as well in this. Um, creating these networks, of course, can be difficult because many agencies have a stake in the funding, planning, and development of our streets. So you have like state, county, local, private developers, regional planning agencies. Um, they all have uh, their fingers in transportation. Um, so typical complete streets policies really only cover the roadways within that one jurisdiction. They don't necessarily apply to all of the other people. Um, so it's important that during the policy development process, you're communicating with those folks on what your goal is with this policy, what their role is in helping you uh, achieve it, um, and creating partnerships and good relationships so that when you are asking for variances from your state DOT, the, the person there isn't seeing you as an annoying person who always asks us for a variance every week and I have to deal with them. But as someone who is really excited about what you're trying to do and wants to help and sees this as an opportunity uh, for her own professional development. Um, see, you also need to think about your neighboring jurisdictions, having bike lanes that end at a bridge. Not so useful. Um, and you also need to coordinate with them to make sure that, yes, you can go over that bridge. Uh, one of the, my favorites is, it's not bad anymore, but in uh, Boston and Cambridge, Cambridge had built some lovely bike lanes and would get you right to the Charles River, and then you're just left. This was uh, years ago before Boston really got their complete street stuff moving, and so you're just like, okay, well, so much for biking today. Uh, so having that is really important. Um, and again, private development, uh, is key. How is that all going to work together? The developers will probably push back and be like, well, why are we building sidewalks? This goes nowhere. It's because in the future, when the next developer builds next door, the sidewalks will connect, uh, for example. Um, and dealing with the state is really important, especially in smaller communities where the main street is your, um, your hub. It's your downtown. It's where everyone wants to be. So making sure they understand what your community wants, um, I think, is important. And a lot of Places that have adopted complete streets policies have communicated to me that that's helpful in talking to their state DOT about what they're trying to achieve. Um, design guidance and flexibility. Communities that have a complete streets policy really need to use the best and the latest design standards that are available to them. Um, things are rapidly changing in terms of what is uh, what tools are available for planners and engineers to use on their streets. Um, Paul has developed one of them. It's the Complete Streets Complete Networks. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, but you can also use the most recent bikeway design guide from ASHTO or the NACTO's um, Urban Street Design Guide that's going to be out later this year, I think. Um, the Model Design Manual for Living Streets, ProWag, ITE's um, Context Sensitive uh, Guide. All of those things are, should be on your shelf, and you can use them. You don't have to write your own. Uh, you can refer to those. Of course, if you want to write your own, you can. So um, you need to think about what are you actually using now? When was the last time it was updated? Um, how do you ensure that flexibility in design is um, allowed and encouraged in situations where it's um, uh, relevant? Um, and you can include that in your policy a number of ways, um, but it also really feeds into how you're implementing that work. Um, 
An effective complete streets policy needs to be sensitive to the type of neighborhood and the land uses that are along the road. Um, how will you adjust your approach, your design approach, according to those land uses and that community context? Uh, how will local stakeholders, including the residents who live there, the people who own businesses along that route, how are they going to be involved? Um, what is their say? How, uh, how do you engage with them and explain what complete streets means and why it's important? Um, and how will the street design reflect and strengthen the unique qualities of your community? Is it having a great a gateway street? Um, is it uh, that you're in the west and so you want it to look like a cowboy town? You know, those are kinds of things that you should be thinking about when you're writing your policy and how are you going to address those as you are implementing that vision. Uh, performance measures, really important, um, especially because uh, residents want more responsive and transparent and accountable performance measures um, for their investments. They want to see what outcomes are coming out of this. And I think Complete Streets, there are lots of ways that you can collect and report data to support what you're doing. Some are super easy, counting the miles of bike lanes that you're doing, the percentage of your pedestrian plan that's been complete. Uh, how many bus stops have shelters for people. Um, really easy counting activities, I think. Uh, but then you can also think about uh, more uh, longer-term goals, mode shift. How many people are walking? How many people are biking? Um, how many people are taking transit? How many people are in single occupancy vehicles? Thinking about all those things um, as a, on a, a longer term and as a community-wide level are, are things that you should be considering as well as uh, you know, we did this project, um, we changed the design of the street, and now we're seeing fewer crashes. That's another important thing that needs to be communicated to people because Complete Streets is, at its core, about safety. Um, so, and then you have to, uh, transportation departments don't need to be the only ones who are reporting on this. Um, you can partner with public health, you can partner with your um, police and your fire uh, to talk about, you know, how are their response times improving? Um, what, are, what are the crash data that they're seeing? Um, and include that in your performance measures for complete streets. It doesn't have to be just transportation. Um, the last point is that a formal policy commitment to complete streets is only the beginning. Uh, the tactics that you will use to accomplish each of the four steps should really reflect the specifics of your community. They're not going to be the same as anyone else's community, most likely. Um, and so you need to, you can refer to those things, but you have to ask yourself a lot of questions. Um, how detailed is your policy going to be? What other work is going to be required in implementation? Who's going to lead the implementation charge and who's going to help? What kind of uh, guideposts are you going to set to make sure that things are changing? Um, what other documents do you have that need to be updated to reflect this new complete streets policy? Do you need to change your project selection criteria? Uh, what are you doing to take advantage of all the funding opportunities that are out there and available to you? Um, as well as any other unanswered questions that come up as you're thinking through this uh, complete streets idea. Um, so uh, with that, I can hand it off to Paul. Thank you, Stephanie. All right. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I am Paul Lippens. I'm the senior planner with Active Transportation Alliance. Um, I think Stephanie's prese uh, presentation really set up 
a lot of the themes that get go into crafting a good complete streets policy and bring um, and starting those initial steps to implementing it. Uh, my presentation today is kind of focusing on uh, another kind of ten themes that kind of come up in a you know variety of the projects I'm going to work on, and I'm going to focus on a few. But I thought about calling this presentation ten motifs. Uh, or using, borrowing something from music and the idea that you can kind of hear um, these discussions happening. And if you were to picture yourself kind of dropping into, you know, month two or month three of a, of a project in a city, um, these things I'm talking about today are going to be kind of the discussions that ha have happened and some tools to, to, uh, to solve them or, or to put on the table. And I'm going to reference a couple projects. Stephanie mentioned this book. This is Complete Streets. Uh, complete networks. This is the the design manual put out by Active Transportation last year. Active Transportation Alliance last year. Um, this is also a, a free resource that's available for people to use. It's um, it's an open source document that you can copy and paste from, and it's online here at at policy.org. I'm also going to reference this document. This is the Safe Streets Manual. Um, this is an approach to implementing Chicago's Complete Streets policy that really focuses on on safety issues. Um, I will say that this is a draft document, um, and the city's still kind of reviewing when they're going to uh, release it. But um, I'm not giving specific examples from this document. I'm really uh, talking more about the things that were discussed to create it. So uh, my first theme is design grammar. What I mean by design grammar is really it's the language uh, that controls the different systems in Complete Streets implementation. And having a common language allows that discussion to happen. So as planners, we're probably all familiar with zoning and land use characteristics. Um, having a way to take that land context, as Stephanie mentioned, and um, translate it into roadway design. So think about simplifying the context zones around uh, themes or around uh, ideas of you know, simple uses, residential uses, commercial uses, because um, they're easier to digest and design for in transportation in that. And similarly, um, we talk a lot about street typology. Uh, this is kind of going back to a design typology for the roadway network. Um, some of you are probably familiar with the functional classification system, which is more about uh, implementing uh, capacity on roads and defining the roads based on the flow of vehicle traffic. Um, this is good. We don't recommend a total departure from functional classifications, but understanding that having some design uh, design solutions around road, roadway uh, is, is a good way to do it. So here's a system that in the uh, Complete Streets Complete Networks we thought, thought about uh, bringing back this concept of boulevards, avenues, and streets, which is a practice uh, recommended by the uh, Congress for New Urbanism and the Institute of Transportation Engineers as well. And this diagram kind of shows how these, uh, this design cram grammar can interplay. Um, you see kind of the, the three levels here where it sets up a level for building form and function, level for roadway form and function, and then a series of outcomes when you make different choices at these levels. And what design grammar does really is it simplifies a complex uh, situation that could result in infinite outcomes to a set of standards that maybe you rule it down through a design tree like this to maybe 200 outcomes. And when you get into that one situation, you can kind of uh, direct your process to uh, a more directed outcome. That makes sense. Um, two, uh, mode hierarchy. 
mode hierarchy is a pretty simple idea. Um, you think about uh, uh, roadway uh, is meant to serve all users. Um, a lot of the, the default standards that are used to design roadways actually already have a hierarchy that's oriented towards optimizing vehicle flow. And that's kind of an unspoken hierarchy to designing the roadway system. Um, what a complete street manual might do is kind of provide an opportunity to direct design oriented around optimizing other modes. So this is an example, for instance, that you might use in a network that had a lot of pedestrians where you wanted to um, make it safer for people to walk, reduce crashes. You might actually say, in, in this project or even in this area, we're going to define a mode hierarchy that's oriented around optimizing you know, first pedestrians and transit and bicycles and auto. Um, and you could set this as a, in your policy, or um, you could uh, set it uh, project by pro project. This is another example from the Complete Streets, Complete Networks book that actually we pooled um, a number of uh, technical uh, committee that we worked with on the project and asked them to think about how they might optimize various modes in different types of street uh, contexts and different types of land use contexts. We use that to develop um, variable mode hierarchies in all of these different situations that we kind of recommend a default in that book. But we realized that, that going through that process actually inspired thought about mode hierarchy. So we also provided this tool in our, our process implementation chapter so that each designer could think about how they were going to approach the design in that concept and, in effect, set their own mode hierarchy for how they approach the system. Number three, uh, process procedure plans. This is something I'm calling the three P's. People are familiar with the concept of three E's. I think this is something that we have to realize how important um, these work together. So the first is process. Um, a lot of times, uh, this chart shows a lot of information, but uh, the idea that uh, transportation projects, they start up in project selection. Why are you even doing the project? And they go down through not just construction, but performance measurement and the maintenance of the facility. Um, having an articulated process can lead to better outcomes. And I think that a lot of times, while people uh, want to have a better defined process, there can also be a lot of resistance. Once you start to see um, that implementing this process is hard work, people can start to resist it. But um, I think that the other thing is people seldom see the benefits that can happen from a more uh, purposeful process. In other words, if you don't use a process, you think you're doing fine. And um, when you actually have a defined process like this, you can yield to a more, more direct outcomes. Um, procedures. Having some kind of system set to show when, when the policy is working and when it's not. Um, this could be done by actually defaulting to uh, a manager that has authority. But in often cases, having an inclusive committee is a good way to go because the idea is that then um, when you want to vary, when you want to look for an exception, when you want to revise uh, your implementation process, you have a formalized system. And this is one way to get going on implementing complete streets. And then finally, plans. When you set up these um, design standards, you actually want to apply them. And I think that saying that a design guideline uh, being developed is enough is, it doesn't really work. I think it's important to go and actually decide where you want those guidelines to apply. 
This is an example um, of a existing conditions analysis for roadways in Cook County and wh what street typologies might actually work in those situations. I'd say that this is not a plan. This is more like a first step to, to a plan. Um, but taking it through a planning process is, I think, a really important implementation step. Uh, network design. Um, this was mentioned briefly in Stephanie's presentation. Um, but the idea that you know, we have uh, a, a you know, variety of networks. This is an example of a traditional grid network. There's certainly suburban-style networks as well. And um, that every roadway doesn't necessarily have to serve every trip by every mode. But it does have to connect to the places people want to go. And by one more mode or another, people need to be able to verse uh, through all these places. And that's what really creates a complete network, is choice in the kind of modes that people are using. And that uh, these networks connect uh, users of all modes to all the places they want to go. Um, target speed and target vehicle. Um, this is a little bit of a, a departure from... Uh, kind of traditional design process, but uh, design vehicles are a common tool used to decide how, uh, how big or how wide different elements of the roadway um, have to be, uh, be made to accommodate vehicles. Similarly, there's a design speed that is calculated by the 85th percentile of all the vehicles traveling on this, this, uh, the street. That's the design speed. So however fast people are going, let's measure what that 85th percentile of them is, and that's how fast we should design the roadway for. So in a sense, it's, it's a concept that says the roadway should be designed to, um, to accommodate the speed that people are driving. Um, this concept of target speed kind of reverses it a little bit, and it says... Maybe the roadway should be designed at a safe travel speed that inspires drivers to drive safely. Um, the three concepts that this issue can address in terms of speed, um, up top you see uh, the idea of sight distance. And the faster vehicles are going, the less amount they can actually see. The slower they're going, the more they can see. You see on the, the left here. Uh, the pedestrians are in focus. You can actually see where people are better when you're driving uh, slower. And two other concepts. Uh, one is just stopping distance. Um, when you're driving faster, it takes you longer to stop. Um, so the chances of something actually coming into view that you're trying to avoid are, are greater when you're driving faster. And then the other is you know, uh, simply um, uh, the idea that at higher speeds, people are more likely, if you hit a pedestrian, they're more likely to be injured in that accident. And at uh, 25 miles per hour, over 95% that people are, are, are hit are walk away from the accident. And at 40, uh, it's, it's 15. So 85% of people are likely to um, be severely injured at, at that speed. So when you think about this design speed, target speed, and how that relates to posted speed, the speed limit you, you see, if you're designing streets right, maybe these things kind of all link and it's actually the same, um, rather than having the, it be very skewed between these concepts. And you know, one way to think about that on the bottom, if you think about these different types of street typologies, uh, you could actually have your target speed linked to the different street typologies. So a street uh, in the design typology or street typology terminology 
might be targeted for speeds, vehicle speeds of somewhere 15 to 20 miles per hour. And likewise, Avenue or Boulevard may be, may be faster. Um, and you see, back to that design tree here, um, the target speed of that roadway becomes an outcome rather than an input. So let's actually have the speed be an outcome of our design process. Um, similarly, design vehicle. The common practice is to select one vehicle and say we have to accommodate this vehicle on all streets. Um, a complete streets approach might actually allow for selecting different vehicles as being the vehicle that gets optimized in different roadway, roadways. And this is actually what's uh, recommended in the Complete Streets, Complete Networks manual. Um, we actually explored, when we were doing the Safe Streets project, of actually designing a, a different design vehicle than is commonly used. This is kind of modeled after a UPS truck, but it's the DL22, which is a, a new design vehicle, which we're saying is maybe something to move towards in designing uh, in urban areas. Uh, number six, protected bikeways. Um, <clears throat> at this point, most people are probably familiar with a bike lane. Um, this is a picture of kind of where the bike lane is typically placed. Um, you know, you're probably also familiar with a protected bike lane uh, idea. Um, but essentially, if you were to picture um, protecting the bike lane by just moving that mode to the inside of the parking lane. In this case, um, we're dealing with kind of a two, two instances of when there's on-street parking, where, where the placement is. And actually, one of the biggest conflicts, safety conflicts for biking in urban areas is the conflict between parking, on-street parking, and biking. Um, and this, uh, when you think about creating a complete streets network, uh, moving towards at least some facilities that provide this kind of pr protection is one way to inspire, you know, better serve uh, the biking mode. And a new study that was published recently in the American Journal of Public Health, this was conducted in Canada, actually found that uh, on the bottom of this graph here you see uh, safety rating, and uh, on, on the vertical axis you see a route preference, and this is a correlation between uh, surveys. The cycle track actually did extremely well it was found to be over 90% safer than the um, control and also uh, scored very well uh, for preference as well. And this is one of the first, um, first studies that actually found a significant safety benefit towards uh, creating protected bikeways. Uh, compact intersections. Um, this is where I kind of talk about uh, the CMAC program and the uh, how one of the it's been used very well actually to create a lot of improvements for um, for biking and for walking. It's also been used to create capacity improvements. We want to reduce um, or make the air quality better by uh, inspiring you know or allowing vehicles to flow freely. Right. So a lot that's resulted in a lot of. It, intersection expansions, um, which actually have the result of moving vehicles faster through the intersection. So in one ways, if you think about an intersection as being the place where you actually want vehicles to travel slowest, because that's where people are crossing the street, this program has actually made it one of the places where people travel fastest. Um, we still want to allow good flow at all, all the vehicles, I understand that. But compact intersections might be a way of allowing for uh, rethinking 
to maybe smaller, uh, smaller lane widths at intersections, slowing vehicles down at intersections, certainly reducing crossing distances. Um, it's a new way of thinking about it, but at least thinking about the idea of if you have a mode of hierarchy, maybe make your design suit the mode you're trying to optimize. Uh, and that's a choice that can be made on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, here's an example here, too, of kind of how a more compact design um, allows for a, um, a, a tighter um, turning radius that would result in a slower speed, um, and an example where uh, you could also make it mountable to accommodate a, a vehicle um, that needed a wider turning radius. So, um, of course, you could not put obstructions in that area, but you can do uh, mountable uh, curb extensions. Um, number eight, planned traffic. Uh, this is also maybe controversial, um, but you know a lot of the ways we project and design um, design facilities is based on actual traffic projections in the future thir thirty years, and consistently VMT has been going up, and that's the way we've done it. Um, this is you know, a graph that shows uh, annual uh, vehicle miles traveled in Chicago between 1995 and 2011. See, it's dropped off by um, about 2 billion, or 1 billion, sorry. Uh, and this is actually um, comparable to uh, VMT across the country in urban areas. And so you say I'm saying not plan for traffic, but I'm saying actually plan traffic. And in some ways, we think about what is the stick to actually make this trend, or at least maybe level it off. Um, what's the benefit? This is an example from the Victorian Transportation Policy Institute. They put together a, a cost-benefit study to estimate the benefit to an area of taking one vehicle mile traveled from, from the auto mode and putting it on a bike walk or uh, uh, transit mode at $2.00. They looked at things like health benefits, environmental benefits, noise. Um, it's a combined uh, effect. But if you think about that, just in what Chicago's experienced since 1995, that's about a $2 billion benefit. Um, the question when you think about you know, how people are benefiting from less traffic, the answer is why we, or the question is why would we want to go back and allow for, uh, uh, you know, congestion that really we can't support. We, you know, we can't keep building our way out of traffic. So um, this is kind of a question that's being posed about changing our philosophy about how we look at our transportation network. I think that Complete Streets is one of the ways to kind of ask that question. Number nine, I say place, leave no trace. Um, you know, there isn't a single uh, Complete Streets process that doesn't talk about place seriously. And I think that a lot of at least planners are more interested in um, working about on issues of place than transportation. And I think if, if we don't have this discussion in Complete Streets, the project kind of fails. And then leave no trace. This is kind of my way of rhyming sustainability issues. But um, really, a project that doesn't deal with sustainability um, also doesn't have much legs to it. So I think making this uh, first and foremost part of a Complete Streets discussion is important. And then my, my tenth point, this is my final point, it's really leadership. Um, I think that um, people always underestimate their own ability to lead. And I think if you put a good idea about, out there and you're passionate about what you're doing, 
uh, a lot of times you can actually make real changes happen. I think the other thing is, is part of leadership is finding leaders in other agencies to work with. And, you know, Stephanie mentioned that uh, interagency coordination is a really important aspect of Complete Streets. Having policies at multiple institutions is what makes it work. But you'll also find that there's leaders at every level in all these organizations, and that's how you can get people working together. So that's my presentation. Thank you. And just as a reminder, as we open this up to a Q&A, just put your hand up, and I will come to you with this microphone so that we can record your questions for our podcast. From a complete street standpoint, uh, what would be a good policy for countdown pedestrian signals? I've seen them in some cities where they start off like 70. I see some places where they start with just a, a pedestrian and then it start, starts at 20. There's on Randolph Market some count, countdowns that start at seven seconds, which is impossible. Well, I'm not an engineer. Um, I think the there probably are policies that dictate what the time should be for pedestrian crossing. Um, it depends on the traffic that you're moving through the other, uh, I guess, parallel with your crossing. Um, but it also depends on the speed at which you're assuming people are walking. Um, I think right now the standard is three and a half feet per second. Um, so if you have a long street that you're trying to cross, then you need to have more time. Um, seven seconds sounds ludicrously low, uh, but I'm sure... Um, Stephanie, is there any official guidance from AASHTO, ITE, anybody, anybody that speaks to transportation engineers? Uh, I believe that would be the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, perhaps. Yes. And is that manual, has that been updated to reflect updates in other areas of transportation planning practice that have been more context sensitive? Has that standard controls manual been updated simultaneously to reflect uh, I would say it lags a bit. Uh, it just takes a really long time for those updates to come through. But this one was updated pretty recently with that three and a half feet per second standard. It used to be three. Wonderful presentations. Uh, I particularly was encouraged uh, of, of looking of your looking at all streets, all all levels, so that we don't don't say, well, this works on the little local and you know everything else. Well, good luck. Uh, but I do wonder. Uh, one of our political con conflicts ends up being that you know the bigger the street, the higher the authority, and so you're. Um, Bottom line question ends up being the network concept, which I, I agree that that it needs to fit into a network, but the network is actually you know multiple agencies, multiple authorities, and so forth. And so far, we aren't set up to really do that uh, in any local settings. And and part of it ends up being how big is the grid or how big is the network that you're looking at? Do you have any any? Uh, direction on, uh, in your uh, uh, presentation materials that speaks to, you know, don't bite off more than you can chew or, you know, something like that? 
Well, I think the first is that you need to have complete streets policies at all levels. Um, and actually here in Chicago, we're pretty lucky. Uh, the city has bought into it. The county has bought into it. Uh, IDOT is supposed to comply with a state law. Uh, and CMAP is also helping local jurisdictions accomplish complete streets. That's unusual. Uh, there aren't very many other regions that have that kind of similar commitment Um but it just takes time working together. Uh, Paul, do you have like Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that Stephanie actually mentioned this in her presentation too, that your policy has to address other agencies' roles. So, you know, one example is, you know, I worked with, I worked with Cook County on uh, when they were developing uh, the county ordinance that was passed last year. And, um, you know, they added language in there about partnering um, partnering with other agencies and specifically uh, looking to, you know, municipalities to understand uh, what their role was and, you know, also working with IDOT um, on their role. I think that um, one of the, the great um, uh, uses for the, the planning of my, my three Ps is actually helping to set, set that vision um, because I think that plans are a great way of communicating in advance what the desired outcomes are. And so I think that you know taking on some some role for planning, uh, even uh, on roadways for other jurisdictions uh, at a municipal level, is one tool that that local agencies have in kind of pre-communicating their needs. And I know you know one of the I think the good things about IDOT statewide policy is that it does look at planning as a um, as a warrant to trigger their policy. Question for Stephanie. Um, under, I believe it was performance metrics, you mentioned return on investment. How do you define that? I think it depends. Well, okay. Easy answer. Depends on your community. Um, but I think it can mean a lot of things. It can mean we're building bike lanes, so we better see people riding bikes. I think that's a return on investment. Uh, it also can mean uh, what a number of communities are experiencing, which is we're reinvesting in this uh, economic corridor that we have, and so we're seeing more people shopping here. We're seeing fewer vacancies. Uh, the retail sales are going up. Um, I think that's a credible measure for return on investment. Uh, a lot of more studies are paying attention to the value of properties, uh, especially in walkable areas versus uh, less walkable places. Chris Leinberger has a number of studies and projects working on that um, and sort of exploring what that means. Um, and that's another way to return, uh, to get a return on investment. Um, I think overall what people want is to see their money going towards fixing more than just one problem. So it's not, we have congestion, let's move cars fast. It's we have congestion and we also have a lot of kids who aren't getting enough physical activity and our downtown is not doing so well and uh, gas costs a lot of money. So how do you answer all of those questions, um, I think, is your return there. Uh, two questions, one of which would be, I've heard a counter argument with the pedestrian countdown signals is that when drivers notice that they're in the area that they're driving in, they sort of use them to gauge how quickly the light's going to change and they sort of will race through a light if it's counting down 
or they will, you know, take their foot off the brake because they know the yellow light is coming on that other uh, cross street and the light's about to change on them. Have you heard this? Have there been any studies done how drivers react to the pedestrian countdown signals? The reason why it took so long for that to be part of the MUTCD is because they spent a really long time studying all of that stuff and came to the conclusion that the benefits of having those are greater than uh, the potential issues of drivers who uh, don't necessarily pay as much attention to the stop uh, as they might have before. All right. My other question was, uh, you mentioned that VMT in urban areas is going down. Um, why is that happening? I, I suppose Chicago's drop of over 14% could be attributable to the fact that we lost some population. But is it part of this back to the city movement and there's new services available in cities? People don't have to go as far or are there other factors at play? Yes. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, obviously economic, uh, peak oil, um, there's also more options for other modes. Um, and, um, you know, population loss in Chicago is certainly true. But as I said, you know, these numbers are being experienced nationally in areas that are growing too. Um, is it a blip? I mean, is this just a temporary downturn? You know, maybe. I think a lot of people would make that argument. Certainly uh, on, you know, freeways, um, you know, the trends might go around. And in some areas, we might continue to see growth. I think in urban areas, the, you know, what people are realizing is that they've actually built out. You can't really build more capacity. And maybe what's happening is that, you know, people are responding to that by, you know, choosing to drive less, using transit for work commute. Um, you know, these things are kind of logical reactions to a system that, you know, in some respects uh, is very frustrating. Um, pe traffic is not a good thing. Um, it's, it's a negative externality on so many aspects of urban life. And maybe this is actually, you know, something good that's happening that's not just a blip in the system. You know, my question, behind, you know, my, my reasoning for presenting that data is if it's good, you know, if this is a benefit, why don't we take it and try to plan to keep it? Um, I think that's kind of a logical response. My question relates to the intersection. You presented the compact intersection and how that slows down traffic and reduces the crossing time and things like that. Are, um, do roundabouts ever come up in your um, communities and are they a complete no-no, a complete opposite to what you're trying to accomplish on that or not? I mean, it, they have tend to maybe move traffic more smoothly. Yeah, modern roundabouts are... Uh an important tool for people to use. Um, I think keeping the traffic flowing at a slow speed is better in a lot of cases than having signalized intersections and really wide intersections where you have several left turn lanes, several right turn lanes, and several through lanes. Um, transferring that over to a roundabout has been shown to help in a lot of places um, and not just in traffic flow for cars, but also people have a space to stop. They only have to cross uh, one or two lanes at a time to get around. Uh, people are moving slower. So I've seen uh, testimony from some business owners who felt that 
hey, like I thought this was going to be terrible, but actually it turned out really great because people see my business now. They stop by. This feels more like a, a place that people want to be. Um, so that's definitely a, a key tool for folks to use in implementing complete streets. I'm wondering if I could get each of you to comment in succession. We'll start with you, Stephanie, and then move to Paul. Uh, over the past, let's say, four years uh, since the start of the economic downturn or the first inklings that something bad was happening, uh, have we seen the conversation around complete streets um, get deprioritized sort of across the board? Or have you seen sort of a constant level of enthusiasm about complete streets in this time period where so many other things uh, have been pushed down the local agenda? If you could comment nationally and then, Paul, if you could talk about what's going on in the Chicago region. Um, both things have happened. Uh, the number of complete streets policies being adopted continues to rise exponentially year over year. Uh, we're well over 400 communities with a complete streets policy right now, whereas a few years ago we were at 80. Um, so people are really interested in this concept and they see it as a potential tool to use in overcoming a lot of the problems that are associated with the economic downturn that we've been uh, working our way through. On the other hand, that also means uh, in general, transportation is underfunded right now. Um, there isn't money to maintain the systems that we have for in many states. Um, there isn't money to build new necessarily. Um, and there are not just roads, but also with transit. Um, there's just not a lot of money. Uh, people who are driving less, that means you're uh, getting fewer dollars from the gas tax, um, which, by the way, has not been increased since the early 90s, um, despite what inflation has happened since then. Um, so there's just, there are all these other issues that are compounding our inability to pay for transportation. So fewer projects are happening and fewer things can be implemented. So communities, especially smaller communities, they adopt a complete streets policy because this is what they really want in their town. But there's no money um, anywhere, and they're on the low end of the list from the state DOT for what's happening. Um, so it just takes a long time uh, for implementation to be seen on the ground. Um, and I think that's one of the, the big takeaways from the economic downturn that we're in right now. People still want this, and more and more people are supporting it. It's just when it gets to the money stage, there's just not enough yet. Um, yeah, so I think the interest, uh, you know, uh, Active Transportation Alliance has seen uh, certainly an interest around the region in pursuing complete streets. Um, we've launched a suburban complete streets campaign. Um, we're actively uh, looking for community partners um, in, in that campaign. Um, I think that, you know, uh, Stephanie actually made the point earlier that people are trying to get more out of, you know, not just their transportation dollar, but really every dollar. Um, and, you know, that's the challenge, uh, you know, we have in the transportation planning profession is to make that happen. And I think that the Complete Streets is, you know, a tool that, you know, whatever you think about uh, the best way to optimize our transportation systems, it's one way that we can speak the same language and get the conversation started. And um, so I think even, you know, with the, in the kind of economic climate we have now, 
um, there's still an interest in having those conversations so that the money that is being spent is spent properly. Um, and I'll also add that in a lot of cases, because of uh, the assumptions made about transportation planning, uh, when you apply a more complete streets approach, you can save money because you don't need to buy more right-of-way because you're not making these assumptions that you need to have four lanes of traffic instead of two or three, um, which would more than adequately cover so that you can save money through this approach as well. And I think um, there are more uh, agencies that are seeing that. Um, and so hopefully the dollars that they are spending are building it right now. Well, for the sake of time, we'll let that be the final word. Let's have one more round of applause for our speakers. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Stephanie Seskin and Paul Lippins for a thought-provoking and informative program on complete streets. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.